Do you have a study sheet? I hope you do. I'm really proud of the image. Okay, so I want you to benefit from the study sheet. Uh, the guy on the front of your study sh- sheet is Li Zhang. He's from China. He's a high hurdler, and until just a couple years ago, he was the world record holder in the high hurdles. And I'd wanted to use a mocked-up uh, version of an image of him on a series I'd used before, and found out for copyright reasons I could not. But here is Lee, and when you look at his face, he's coming over the hurdle there, there's this intense focus and drive. And that's sort of what we're talking about this morning. Let me get our thing going here so you can be with me. And hopefully I can keep up very good with this. Uh, Guys, we're not starting in the Bible this morning, but we'll, we'll get there, so patience if you will. Everyone know who is on the screen behind? Everybody know this guy? Because it's a while now. So this is Charlton Heston. And if you don't know, he's one of the leading men in Hollywood over the past century. Charlton Heston was one of the key male leading figures in, really we would say in Hollywood history. He was in some of the most memorable big budget movies of the last hundred years. If you turn your TV on, Every year in the spring around Resurrection Sunday, you'll see Chuck Heston playing Moses in the Ten Commandments. But also, the movie Ben-Hur was a huge blockbuster. I think in its time it won more Academy Awards than any other film uh, or movie. It was spectacular. still certainly one of my all-time ten favorite movies. Uh, Charlton Heston lived quite a life. Uh, There was some turbulence in his early childhood. His parents divorced. He was raised by a stepfather. But if you look back over the affairs of his life, he lived basically a charmed life. He grew up in the northern woods of Michigan. He was hunting and fishing as a small boy, doing the things boys love to do. World War II came along. He was born in, I think it was 1923. World War II came along. And though he was serving the country in a place that certainly didn't see much action, that was Alaska, he was a radio operator and he was a gunner on a B-25 bomber. So he served our country in that sense. He was in movies and stage for more than five decades. Uh, He was a political activist before political action in Hollywood was a big deal. And check this out. He started about 1955. He was a Democratic supporter. And he, he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. And like Ronald Reagan, he would say over time the Democratic Party left him. He became a Republican supporter. He supported Reagan for president as well. But he was in political action. He had a civic-mindedness that was not popular or the norm back in the 50s and 60s, but that was his take of life. He was going to be invested wherever he could. Check this out too. He was married to the same woman, Lydia, for 64 years. That's no small thing. Yeah, especially, you know, not just now, but then to maintain a marriage in Hollywood in his day was a challenge as well. But he was married for 64 years to his lovely wife. He had his demons too. He was treated for alcoholism later in life. I don't know how much that was a part of his earlier life, but that was something he took care of later. And listen to this. This was 2008 he died. And listen to what Richard Corliss wrote of Heston in Time Magazine after his passing. He said, From start to finish, Heston was a grand, 
ornery anachronism. And that just means a throwback to an earlier age. The sinewy symbol of a time when Hollywood took itself seriously. When heroes came from history books, not comic books. Epics like Ben-Hur or El Cid simply couldn't be made today in part because popular culture has changed as much as political fashion, but mainly because there's no one remotely like Charlton Heston to infuse the form with his stature, fire, and guts. That's not a bad epitaph. That he was so engaged that at his passing, Corliss says in Time Magazine, there's no one left like him. There's no one of his stature. Heston's movie characters were writ large and memorably, and so was his personal life. Now, I read his autobiography several years ago, and the title of that is In the Arena. In the Arena. And that that image or that metaphor is meant to convey a life lived out actively and fully. And his certainly was. His professional life was lived in the highest levels of success and stardom, and his personal life was lived in the grit and grime of real life, real effort, real strain, real wins, and real losses. The two guys I'm starting with, by the way, I'm not bringing them up because of their Christian faith. Frazier Heston, his son, who played baby Moses in the Ten Commandments, has also been in Hollywood, but not as an actor, as a director and a producer. He was interviewed, I think it was Christianity Today, and he was asked about his father's faith. And he said, well, my father was a man of great faith, and biblical ethics and conviction, there's no clear testimony of conversion there. So at the end of the day, I don't know where Heston was. But the thing that strikes me is, Heston was a guy who invested his life thoughtfully and fully in every arena open to him. And the title of that, In the Arena, that his view of himself and life was, I'm in the arena of life, I'm competing, I'm investing myself fully, right through to the end. He had Alzheimer's, and so the last few years of his life were without the kind of activity that characterized the rest. But that was his view of himself. I'm fully invested in life in all the ways, all the areas of the arena, if you will, that I can be. That was a great metaphor for a life fully and well lived. Let me go to another guy that I really like, uh, two of my favorite guys. We don't agree with everything they did in life, right? To still look up and aspire to elements of their life. Uh, Churchill is one of my favorite politicians, and Teddy Roosevelt, for other reasons, is another. Roosevelt lived a full life himself, which I'll mention in a minute. But one of the things, if you look up online, if you just do a search for in the arena, you will get reams of hits for a little piece that Teddy Roosevelt wrote, our 26th president. And listen to what he wrote about a view of life that requires our active, thoughtful participation. This is what Roosevelt wrote. He said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, 
who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Roosevelt's view of living life. Well, you know, if you know his story, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, there's some similarities between he and Churchill. Uh, Churchill's dad didn't think he would ever amount to anything, which is why he sent him to the military school. Well, when, when Roosevelt was a young man, he was very sick, uh, pathetically sick. He was a weakling, and his parents didn't know if he'd live. And one of the things about him was he had a tenacious will to live and to participate. And so in his growing up years, he did everything he could to strengthen himself physically. In his college days, he would run across campus from class to class because he was trying to overcome that natural limitation. And at the end of his life, Roosevelt becomes the epitome of a manly kind of strength. But that's not how he started. He just said, by sheer will and force of will, I'm going to overcome my natural physical limitations. So they did not define him. He was president, which is why we primarily remember him, but Roosevelt spent years in the saddle in the American West when it still was an unsafe place to live. You know, his charge up San Juan Hill. Guys, if you want to read something exciting, read, read the commendation. All this is available, of course, online. And he has a website devoted to him and his life and history. His charge up San Juan Hill literally was in a withering fuselage of bullets coming down and he got up in the middle of the grass and told his men charge, and he went up on the hill. He could easily, it's like Washington in the War of Independence. He was being targeted, shot at everywhere, and he was not going to be stopped. And they took that hill, and they won a victory that day. That was the kind of guy he was. One of my favorite stories about Roosevelt, no kidding, you know, some guys live larger than life, and that may not be the way we live, but we can certainly emulate the kinds of things that motivated them. So in 1912, Roosevelt was running for re-election as president. He had sat out four years. He didn't like the way the government was going. He ran for re-election. He was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he was standing up giving a speech in the street from an open-air car. And from five feet away, a guy with a 38 revolver shot him in the chest. And the bullet went through his overcoat, and he had his speech for the next speech he was given in his pocket. The bullet went through the speech, the folded up speech, and into his chest. And the guys around him weren't sure he'd been hit because he acted like nothing had happened. And he said, we need to go on to the next place. They get the guy and they say, Roosevelt tells him, don't hurt him. He was from a mental institution where he was returned afterwards. But Roosevelt, don't hurt him and let's get on to the auditorium. I've got to speak to, it's eight or 9,000 people in Milwaukee auditorium. And the guy checks with him and he puts his hand in his coat and he says, you've been shot. And Roosevelt, you can read this online. It's a great story. And Roosevelt's like, there's more important things. I cannot be stopped by this. He goes to the auditorium. A doctor looks at him and says, you cannot do this. And he says, put a handkerchief there, cover up the wound, and I'll go on stage. Well, word that there was an attempted assassination on him had spread. So people in the auditorium had heard Roosevelt was shot. Well, there's people in the crowd that think that this is just a story drummed up for Roosevelt's benefit. So on the stage, he opens his coat and he shows them his, his shirt is bloody because the bullet has not even been removed from his side yet. And he speaks for an hour and a half to eight or 9,000 people because he was convinced that what he had to say 
was more important than going and being treated at the hospital. This was the kind of guy he was. He lived life, think of Heston, in the arena. It's hard to imagine somebody more committed to just being engaged, who was focused, energized, engaged on what he thought he was supposed to do. Now, on a much lighter note, do you guys know what this is? It says at the bottom. Did, would you know if, if it didn't say what it was on the bottom, what that is? So this is a much lighter note, right? But that's old Texas Stadium. Any Cowboy fans? No one's? Okay. One? Okay. Not very many. So that's old Texas Stadium, home of the Dallas Cowboys from 1971 to 2008. Why in the world do I bring this up? Charlton Heston, Teddy Roosevelt. You guys know this was intended to be, this structure was intended to be the first retractable roof in the NFL when it was being built. But they ran into a problem, a snag. As it's being constructed, they realize our supports will not hold that retractable roof we intended. So they left the area above the field open because that thing won't hold anymore. But linebacker D.D. Lewis commented on the hole in the roof Famously, Texas Stadium has a hole in the roof so God can watch His favorite team play. That's a good line, isn't it? Whether you like the Cowboys or not, I love the panache and the perspective. And guys, not just that. Thinking of Heston's biography, autobiography in the arena, thinking of the way of of Roosevelt's writing and his take on life, and thinking of Texas Stadium that there's a hole in the stadium so God can look down and see this competition down on the field below. That's actually a biblical view. It's a biblical view that's repeated throughout the New Testament. And that's where I want to go this morning. If you have a Bible or your study sheet, you can go to Hebrews 12. We'll be back and forth in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. But this view of living life intentionally focused unreservedly in the arena, competing, energized, with, with willful determination to take on all the things that are presented in our life and not, not back down, not give in. This is a biblical view of living life successfully and well. And you see this in Hebrews 12.1. Now if you remember in Hebrews 11, the writer has gone through and he has told us about person after person in the Old Testament who lived life faithfully. And they were examples of people who had lived in the arena of life, had competed, and had won because of their faith. So when you get to chapter 2, they're going to become the audience, if you will, and those who encourage us to live as they did. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So here's the image. There's an arena implied. And the saints who have lived faithfully before us, they are in the stadium and they're viewing us as we compete in the race of life in the arena today. That's the imagery. Have you guys, uh, track and field has suffered in the last several decades, but that was sort of one of my things when I was growing up. Have you guys ever seen a marathon finish in a stadium? A few? It's an exciting, a marathon race is not exciting to me. I kid you not, my first KU relays as a high school athlete, I went into the, uh, it'd be the East Bleachers at KU at the stadium, 
And that's uh, where the athletes were training and getting ready for races or coming in afterwards. And I walked in with my coach, and there's these guys sitting on these stands, and they've got their shoes off, and their feet are bleeding. And I said to my coach, what do they do? Well, they're the marathon runners. I was like, oh my goodness. You know, a marathon's 26.2 or 3 or 4 miles. It's a long run. Usually the way a marathon works is this, though. Those guys are not running in the stadium. So they're running out in the streets. The police have streets cordoned off, and they're running their mileage. But what happens is, as they're approaching the finish line, the finish line is on the track. And so as the announcer hears that they're approaching, the announcer will say the first of the marathon runners is approaching, and generally what would happen is, this, the, as those guys run into the stadium, the people in the stands rise to see who it is coming in. And they're cheering those, those first people finishing the marathon as they run around the track, I think it's one time, and hit the finish line. That's the image of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. See, the guys that finished faithfully before us, they've crossed the finish line. Now they're sitting in the stands, and they're waiting for us to finish our race as well. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. It's a marathon. On this last Sunday of the year, this is what I want to add. Just ask a couple of questions. So hopefully this week, if we haven't already, we're looking back to 2015 and we're reviewing our life. What, what was it filled with? What did we do? How successful was it? How fully invested in the arena of life were we in this last year? And looking at 2016 with intentionality, what is this year going to shape up for us? What does full involvement and investment look like for us in the year coming up? Are we striving in the arena of life? Or are we sitting prematurely in the bleachers? Are we actively pursuing the call of God on our life? Or are we sitting on our backsides before the race is done? To live the life of faith means to have a conscious, tenacious attitude that will finish the course God has set for us, that will do our utmost to succeed at any cost in the things God means us to be about. That's the question we're asking. That's why Roosevelt and Heston are such great examples. Fully invested living life in the arena. Now, lest you think that I'm making all this up, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, or 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 24, I'll start there. When Paul writes this, he's been telling the Corinthians that it's more important how they live than some of the specific things they do in life, that they shouldn't worry about using all their liberties, that really there's bigger issues in life than can I eat this or drink that. And he used himself as an example of a person who had the highest motives that would keep him going in all the ways God wanted him to be involved in life on this earth. And he uses the image of a runner, of an athlete competing in the arena. So he says, this is 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Run in a way to win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If you've been an athlete in high school, college, or anything along those lines, you know that for athletes, if you compete at a high caliber, everything in the rest of your life affects your participation as an athlete. Uh, when I was in high school and playing basketball, basketball was my love. I, 
I ran track later in college because I could get a scholarship to a major institution on that, but basketball was my first love. So that meant for me, my life was governed by basketball. And I would play hoops all year long. And my friends and I would do over-distance work with the cross-country runners in the fall. We'd do weights during the fall. We would scrimmage the rest of the year so that we could participate at the highest level possible come basketball season. Uh, I uh, I was 30 pounds or so lighter, but the same height in high school. And my coaches would tell me, you really need to beef up. And so they would encourage me to eat as much food as I could. So in the cafeteria at Hayden High School right here in Topeka, I would eat as much food as I could, same at home. Things have changed. You know, back then, eat as much as you want. I can't put on weight. doesn't work that way today. But, but both the participation, playing, running, lifting weights, eating, that was part of my discipline. I kid you not, you know, right next to me, typically, each day, I would sit next to a friend named Charlie. Charlie was not a basketball player. He was small. He was very wiry, very strong. Do you know what he was? He was a pathetic wrestler. And do you know while Mike is wolfing down as much food as Mike can, do you know what he's doing? He's eating hard-boiled eggs, celery sticks, and carrot sticks. And I'm feeling for him, right? But he was doing the same thing I was, but it looked different. We were both disciplining ourselves so that we could compete at the highest level possible, he in wrestling and me in basketball at that time. But there was intentionality. The rest of your life was dedicated to the participation on the basketball court or on the wrestling mat. Everything else governed. Everything was towards that goal. Paul said that athletes exercising self-control in all things, they're doing it to receive a perishable wreath. But he says we're competing for an imperishable wreath. You know, back in the Roman and the Greek games, you participated not for a gold, silver, or bronze medal. You participated for the victor's crown, which was a laurel wreath. And of course, because it's a plant, as time went on after you won that, it would just dry up. It would shrivel up because it had been a live thing. So you're competing, Paul says, in life for this thing that perishes. But as a Christian in the arena of life, you're, co- you're competing for a crown that never fades. It never gets old. It never dries out. He says in verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's intentional. There's planning. You know, again, thinking about the end of the year, looking back on this year, looking forward to the next, there's this thought of what does it take to be intentional? to plan the things I should be engaged in in the arena of life. He says, I discipline my body, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, I'm making sure I'm doing all the things I should do, none of the things I shouldn't do, so that I can compete and win. I'm bringing the focused intentionality of an athlete to bear in my spiritual investments. Now, if you look at this, uh, this is 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Uh, When Paul wrote Timothy, Timothy was a timid guy. So if he was an athlete, he'd have been maybe the skinny guy, you know, the guy that you'd say you need to pump up, you need to work harder, you need to eat more. He's timid. His personality was not a charger, a hard charger like Paul was, or like Heston or Roosevelt. So 
Paul's routinely encouraging. But listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12 to Timothy. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now when he says fight, this is not warfare. This is not a battle. This is an invitation to enter a contest to contend in the gymnastic games. It's the arena again. The imagery is an athlete competing in the arena. And here it would be of a wrestler. Fight the good fight. Every sinew, every muscle brought to bear to win the competition in the arena. So when Paul winds down that letter to Tim, he says, contending the arena, run to win, fight to win the, the race, the battle of life. So life in the arena was Paul's lifestyle and it's the one he enjoined on others as well. Now, Paul encouraged Christians in his day to model their lives after his, and he said he modeled his life after Christ. If you think about this, and I'm being a little free with some descriptive terms here, Jesus, the world's, I first put the world's greatest athlete. There was a Disney movie that seemed a little cheesy called The World's Greatest Athlete, but the world's greatest competitor. If we see life in this sense as in the big picture, competing in the arena of life, Jesus is certainly par excellent the example of that. So consider what He did. So God the Son is in heaven with no lack, no want, glory forever. And He leaves, if you will, heaven's bleachers. And He comes down, if you will, into the stadium to compete and to fight. And when He comes down... He doesn't come down into some cushy environment, but He's born into a blue-collar family. He sweats as a carpenter. He walks the dusty roads of a despised little town, Nazareth and Galilee. Those were the backwaters of Israel at the time. He invests Himself in 12 guys the rest of the world thought were losers. And He works this incredibly grueling schedule for three and a half years, serving others and teaching. And then at the end of it all, the ultimate arena event, if you will. He dies on the cross. And heaven, think of this, looking down at Him as the example of living fully in the arena, sees heaven's prince conquer sin and death, wrestling with them, if you will, sin and death, in His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. Jesus is the example par excellent of us competing in the arena. Look back at Hebrews 12.2 for just a second. The writer continues and says, looking to Jesus with that thought of running the race, competing well, finishing the finish line. He continues and says, look to Jesus. He's the example, ultimately, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus sits in the victor's chair next to God the Father in heaven. He competed. He won. He wears the victor's crown next to God the Father in heaven. That's His example to us as well. So where does this shake out for us? And what does this look like for us? What's our arena? This is the the thing. Guys, we are not Hollywood movie stars. We are not political powerhouses, right? So if we say, well, they lived up here, I'm not Jesus and we're not Paul's, so they're up here and we're down here, and we say, well, it doesn't convert. And I say, well, no, really it does. The example is the thing. 
How did they face their life and the charge God gave them? What did their fight look like? How did they engage in their race? That's still the things we can emulate, and we should. So for each one of us here, we have an arena of life. And we're called to compete in the arena God has set us in, in our time, in our way, with our gifts and our calling. And the question really becomes, is that what we're doing? Are we fully engaged in the arenas God has given us? Now, as Christians, the first thing related to any of this, and I realize I'm a broken record on a bunch of the things I say, and this is one of them, you start, what are our priorities? So as believers, Christ, our relationship with God, is the first priority, and it's the last priority. When we're talking about the race of faith, it's the relationship with God, with Jesus, through the Spirit, that is the first and last priority. We cannot compete well in the arena of life if we are not first and foremost engaged in that relationship with the Lord Himself. Think of Jesus as your personal trainer or your coach. Can you imagine if a basketball team, five guys go out on the court and they never talk to their coach, there's no plays, they don't know what they're doing, they're just running around. If you and I aren't first and last engaged in that personal relationship with our player coach with the Lord Jesus, how do we expect to compete well in any of the other arenas of life? That is the first thing. This gets back to very basic things like, are we simply spending time with the Lord in Scripture and in prayer? Are we intentional about worship? Are we hanging out with the body? Just very, very basic things. But you know what? Athletes, you lose your You do the same things over and over and over and over. Because you have to or you lose your edge. You lift weights, you run, you work out. If you don't, you'll find that you can't compete very well. Uh, Our daughter's violin player told her this little ditty, which I've never forgotten. Mispractice one day and you'll know it. Mispractice two days and I'll know it. Mispractice three days and everyone will know it. As an athlete, as someone in training, if we're not in the arena competing, training, disciplining ourselves... Guys, you cannot compete well. It does not work. And the first place we do that is simply in that relationship with our player coach, with the Lord Himself. And it's not hard, but it requires... This is discipline. You know, many times people will say, it's hard for me to get up early. I'm sympathetic to a point. And then I say, it's about discipline. Uh, when I was running track at K-State, I felt sorry for the guys who ran 800 meters and above. No kidding. I'm getting up, dragging myself out of bed to go to breakfast. Well, they're stretching in the lobby because they're ready to go do their over-distance run in the morning before they can come in for breakfast. Guess what? If you're a long-distance runner, that's part of the gig. That's what you do. Like it or not. For us, getting up earlier, whatever it takes, the, the simple disciplines that simply enable us to engage thoughtfully, intentionally. You know, if we say, I, it's hard for me to get up early, get over it. And get up early. Or do whatever it takes. But otherwise, we never compete. And we'll look back on our life and we'll think, gosh, I missed that. We will. So it starts with that. A prayer. Prayer in the Word, it starts with that. If you're married, and again, these are circles. Uh, if we consider it uh, in the arena, I have varying degrees of responsibility. So my first and your first is to the Lord Himself. If I'm married, my next area of responsibility, my next arena, if you will is my spouse. Simple question. When, when we meet with couples, this is easy. We say, hey, 
A 1 to 10 scale, a 10 is heaven on earth, 1 is hell on earth, where's your marriage? 1 to 10, because it just gives you a number, it gives you a sense. And we say, okay, if you're not a 9 or 10 now, what would get you from where you're at to a 9 or 10? What would you say and what would your spouse say? Our marriages are part of our arena. You'll find that your marriage can enable you to participate more fully in what God's called us to, or it can hinder you just based on whether we're being faithful there or not. Are we loving and supporting our spouse in the ways we should be? You see, this whole thing works from the inside out. If we're faithful, Jesus said, in the small things, the unseen things, people don't see you and I meeting with the Lord, do they? It's by ourselves. It's at home. Maybe in the dark of the morning or the evening. But that's what the rest of my life is built on. And your marriage is the same way. It's that next sphere. Are we being faithful in the arena of parents' marriage? If you're raising children at home, guys, the, as Christian parents, your, your soul, your key, wrestle, fight, race with your children is to enjoin on them the faith. Uh, disciplers is sometimes descriptively a better term than parents. Sometimes if we think parents were thinking one thing or another, I, I raise my child, whatever, but if we think discipler, I'm commissioned to disciple them to know and love and serve God. I can't make them be born again, but I can do everything short of that. I can read the Scriptures to them. I can pray with them. I can model a life of faithfulness to them. So as parents, in the arena of parenting, are we doing the things we can and should be? You know, in the church and then to the outside world as well, are we serving? Uh, Paul was a servant. Jesus was the servant of all servants, serving us in giving His life for us. We're called to serve. You know, if you're not plugged into the body, you're not serving. You, you won't be, you can't be. Are you in a home group? You know, oftentimes we'll go from church to church to church and we'll say things like, I just never felt plugged in. And, I, and my question routinely is, are you in a group? Are you in a small group? Men's group, a women's group, a home group? Groups like this, each group has its own forte, the thing that it does best. Big groups on Sunday morning do not engender personal relationships by which others know me and I know them. They can encourage and challenge me. I can encourage and challenge them. We won't feel like we're knit into the body. We won't know where and how we should serve if we're not plugged in intentionally. And again, think of Paul. He says, I'm not running haphazardly. I'm not boxing the air. Everything I do, I'm being intentional about. We've got to bring that to bear in the way we're serving as well. We need to be serving in the church. We are, everyone's gifted to serve the body. And when we don't serve, the body misses out. But beyond that also, we're intended to have an impact on the larger culture around us. I love the fact that Heston was involved in civics. He was a wealthy Hollywood guy. He didn't have to do any of that. But he said, I have a, a view of life that requires me to be invested in the life of others in a way that they are benefited. We should have that same outlook for the larger world around us. Primarily, guys, that's sharing the gospel. That's the also a good thing we can do for those around us to share the hope we have in Christ. But we can also do other things. We can be good neighbors. We can volunteer at the mission. Some of us are, are serving others. We go on uh, seasonal mission trips. That's another way to serve others. It has nothing to do with doing something for ourselves, but it's outreach to the world. Are we benefiting those in the world around us? So, really, what has God called us to? What's God's call on our life? What's our arena? And are we being faithful in that? 
Last, uh, last point here. I think this is an image, uh, I'm going to forget her name, but her father's on staff at the Master Seminary. She's a world-class sprinter for the United States. Uh, look back at Hebrews again. Uh, Hebrews 12.1. We're told to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run the race with endurance. You know, in the race of life, you can't afford extra baggage. You know, the Greeks, uh, there's no image for this. You know, the Greeks competed naked. No clothing. No suits. No numbers on their chest or their back. In the nude. And the thought was, there's nothing that restricts my movement. There's no extra weight on me if I'm running or wrestling. Well, if you look at track and field athletes today like this image, these, they've gone to these skin-tight suits, low resistance, they're super lightweight. There's nothing that impedes them from moving or running. We okay? Okay. So the, the athletes know, I can't afford heavy clothing. Everything is, is as light as it can be and as small or as tight as it can be. And it's all to the purpose that nothing I'm wearing is slowing me down. And as Christians, again, end of the year is a great time to just ask ourselves, are there things in my life, this could be attitudes, they could be habits, practices, they could be friendships, is there anything in my life that's slowing me down? Are there weights I'm trying to carry that God doesn't mean me to? Are there things that impede my ability to compete well in the arena of life? And those are things we need to chuck. And guys, this is always true for all of us. I mean, any kind of spiritually led introspection, we'll see things in our life that aren't what God wants them to be. And we repent and we get back into the race. We, we leave those things behind. So what do we need to chuck off? And maybe what kind of godly habits or attitudes do we need to encourage? Paul said this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Don't have anything to do with irreverent, silly myths, but train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Discipline yourself. Again, it's this thought of I'm bringing an athlete's mindset to my spiritual life. I'm disciplining myself. I'm not competing the arena running necessarily, but I'm bringing that same kind of discipline and mindset to bear on the places God has for me and you here. Well, let me close with this. Uh, when Paul wrote his last letter, and again, he's trying to encourage timid Timothy, he winds down with this picture of an athlete again. So he tells Timothy, and this is just before his execution, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6-8. through 8, Paul says, he, one image is this, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He said, it's like being at the temple and I'm, I'm the wine in the glass that God is pouring out at the altar as a sacrifice. I'm being poured out. I'll be gone. But he says, I have fought the good fight. I have wrestled to win. He says, I have finished the race. I ran through the end of my life pushing hard all the way through because I have kept the faith. And then he says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Guys, this is the victor's crown that doesn't fade, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Isn't that interesting? 
Here he doesn't say those who fought well. Love disappearing. The thought is this. If my heart, if my mind is focused on Christ, if I love is appearing, if I'm thinking about being joined with Him forever, the fact is I do compete on earth in the arena like an athlete, like a runner, or like a wrestler. I bring that intentionality to me because I'm connected to Christ and the thought of seeing Him and being with Him forever. So the last week of the year for me is always, uh, it's, it's timely in the sense of it's a great time to review, look back and look forward. Any one of us can close out our life, the race of our life, like Paul did. We can say, we, we have the ability to say, I have finished the race, I fought the fight, I've kept the faith, and I know God has the victor's crown for me in heaven, one that never fades away. This is doable. We can do this. Whether we did this in 2015 or not, we can do this in 2016. Would you pray with me? Father God, thanks that Your call, Your commands are Your enablings. And You're not asking us to do anything, Lord, that You're not equipping us to do. Father, would You simply show each of us what competing in the arena of life looks like for us this coming year? Would You show us what success looks like, Lord, and what it requires of us? Would You help us bring intentionality, focus, and determination, Lord, to honoring You in 2016. In Jesus' name, Amen.